0: Simple linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the psychedelic salon. And uh, as promised Here's a short podcast that may be of some help to you should uh, you ever find yourself confronted with someone who claims that uh, MDMA or ecstasy or molly or whatever you want to call it, but pure MDMA is what I'm talking about. If somebody claims it burns holes in your brain, well, maybe this is something you ought to uh, let them listen to because, well, it doesn't as long as it's pure. What many people are unaware of is that while MDMA had been used for therapy for several years without raising much of a fuss, it was in Dallas, Texas that it first became a street drug in a big way. Somehow, uh, although I had never been involved in the drug scene before 1984, I wound up becoming involved in the promotion and distribution of what was at the time a legal substance. One of the focal points of the Dallas scene at that time was the Stark Club which was such an in-place that Madonna even moved to Dallas for a while just to be closer to the action there. So, when Michael Caine began producing a soon-to-be-released documentary about the Star Club, he sent a production team to my home and uh, spent most of the day uh, interviewing me about my involvement in that scene. But since my interactions with the Star Club were very minimal, the interview didn't dig up any sound bites of direct interest for the movie. So the time and expense of the interview seemed to be a loss. However, Tom Huckabee and George Wada, who interviewed me and who supervised the camera crew, took those many hours of me talking and cut it down to about 29 minutes, thus uh, creating a short film that is tentatively going to be made available as a bonus feature on the DVD release of the Stark Project movie. And the audio of that feature is what I'm going to play for you in just a moment. I think that you'll get more out of it actually by watching the video, which uh, really is a lot more interesting thanks to the photos and the video clips that Tom and George added. But if you haven't had time to see it yet, this uh, short podcast will give you a little better idea of the history of MDMA as it found its way to the street. In the program notes for this podcast, uh, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us, you'll find some links to the uh, Stark Club project itself. And uh, through those links, you're also going to see some wonderful photos, videos, and interviews with some of the celebrities who were regulars there. And since you obviously won't be able to uh, see the film's credits, I'm going to uh, read them uh, both before and after the interview in the place that uh, you'd normally see them in the film. And now, Confessions of an Ecstasy Advocate. A Dogpaw Production, M3 Films and the Start Project presents Confessions of an Ecstasy Advocate, a film by Tom Huckabee and George Wada, featuring Lorenzo Haggerty. Well, I'm Lorenzo Haggerty, and uh, I was born in a small town outside of Chicago back in uh, actually 1942. Uh, Irish Catholic family, uh, altar boy, uh, Boy Scout, my dad was a World War II vet, so I marched in the parades. I went to the parades. We had a lot of Fourth of July and patriotic events. and I was uh, pretty much a flag-waving American growing up, just like uh, everybody in my age group, I think, was at the time. Well, I uh, joined the Navy. I went to Officer Canada School and became a naval officer and served with a, the Navy in a destroyer off the coast of Vietnam. And while I wasn't engaged in hand-to-hand combat, there were some things that we did, some missions we were involved in, that I, I felt pretty bad about. And that's when my opinions started changing. I, I went to Vietnam with the Navy as a war-supporting patriot, and I came home very opposed to the war, but I still had a couple more years to do in the Navy, so uh, I didn't say much. I uh, saw the hippie movement going on. Tim Leary was making the news with acid. and. I thought, well, he's probably ruining the youth of, the, of America with all this uh, drugs he was talking about. But I didn't really pay much attention to it. I was, I was basically involved in being a naval officer, which I loved. I really enjoyed my time in that service, but I was gone all the time, so I didn't get to see my family uh, very much. And so that's when I decided to get out of the Navy. Prior to my first experience with MDMA, uh, or ecstasy, I had had zero drug experience except for alcohol and caffeine and uh, never even smoked pot. I was a, a lawyer in Texas, and uh, not only would I lose my law license if I got caught, they were putting people in jail for 30 years to life for a single joint, and uh, I wasn't going to risk that. In 1984, the spring, I got a call from a friend in Mississippi. He was a lawyer friend, actually one of my closest friends. And He said, do you know anything about ecstasy? And I said, what do you mean? He said, there's a drug called ecstasy. Dallas is where it's all happening. I said, no, I don't know anything about it, but... Uh, why do you want to know? And he said, it sounds like something we ought to check out. At first, I didn't know where to look for MDMA, except I did know that my wife had a good friend who was a model in town, and she ran with a pretty fast crowd. At least it was fast to me. And so I called her, and we went out and had lunch one day, and I said, "Uh, so Judy, do you know uh, anything about this thing called ecstasy? And she had kind of a sheepish smile and said, what do you want to know? And I said, where do I get some? How do I try it? And she said, well, I can help the, help you there, and uh, so we arranged. I came over to her house on a Friday night, and uh, she was rushing out on a date, but had this friend come by who I didn't know at the time, and he gave me a, a little instruction. He just said, now you're gonna feel really good, but you're not gonna go crazy or anything, and so I, I took the pill. I think it was 120 milligrams, but nothing really happened that I felt was happening, that I wasn't seeing wild pictures. I wasn't going crazy. Uh, so I said, nothing's happening, so he gave me some more, and an uh, hour or so later, I said, nothing's happening, and he gave me some more, and that was really a <laughs> mistake, because I had an over-the-top trip, and I, uh, when when she came home from her date, my eyes were strobing like that, and it kind of panicked her, because she'd never seen that before, and so she'd been playing music, or she'd left some music, and, and the only tape that she'd left was uh, Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, and we must have played that two dozen times. I got so imprinted with that music that you can play that today, and I will flash back into almost an ecstasy trip. It really has an imprint on me, Uh, but I got tired of that music finally, and she'd come home, and she was worried about my eyes strobing, and she went into the back room to do something, and I wanted different music, so I I started walking out. I walked out, and I'm walking down the street. She thought I was going to get in my car and leave, but uh, there was a cassette tape there that my oldest son had uh, a tape of Kataro, Kataro's key. By then she had uh, taken some ecstasy too. And so we just, uh, the rest of the night we laid there and and she and I and and this other guy uh, just talking. And and, uh, I talked to some about my Vietnam experience. I talked to her some about my difficulties in my marriage. I talked about trouble with my business. And the two of them had been through this enough with, with people taking it for the first time. That they more or less let me do all the talking and so i just kind of vented and talked and uh in retrospect it was probably some sort of a therapy session but it did change my outlook about things i've been under a lot of stress and i no longer felt the world was caving in on me everything felt good again the day after that first MVMA trip i I went home and I, I, you know, I had, by then I was in the thralls of MDMA still, you know, the afterglow. And so I was very truthful and honest. I I went home and I said, you know, I I didn't tell you the truth. I didn't leave town last night. I went over to Judy's house and I took this drug, ecstasy. And, uh, you know, the first reaction, of course, was not extremely positive, although uh, she didn't freak out or anything because she trusted Judy. She trusted me. She knew that we weren't having an affair or anything. And I said, you've got to try it with us, and and I said, maybe just you and me, and uh, a week or so later, we tried it, and it was amazing. We told each other a lot of things that were bothering us about each other. We just had a really clear and, and frank discussion about all the little things that, after you've lived together for 12, 13 years, start building up, and what we discovered, and, and this is something I've discovered about that substance, is it, when I, I was in the state with my, my wife, that I lost my fear of being completely honest with her. It was like truth serum. I could tell her anything, and since I knew she was in the same state I was in, she could accept it and not you know, get angry at me. And that next day, after our uh, first experience together, uh, she was exactly in the same place I was in. She wanted to do it again. She thought this was really magical material. She could see with me that it was something that could actually change the world. Dallas in the mid-80s was a wild and crazy place. I mean, it was a oasis of money on the North Texas prairie. You could get money for any kind of business. Everybody was making a lot of money in real estate. I think I wound up having five cars at the time. Ecstasy just sort of was the frosting on the cake of a real exciting period in, in the, the business structure, the social structure of Dallas, because uh, while it was a buckle on the Bible belt, there was a lot of uh, repression that that had to come out. It was so uh, much of a churchy town that I'd go to the Catholic Church with my family on Sunday morning, but I'd go to the Baptist Church in the afternoons to make uh, business deals and to be seen by the right people. Ecstasy reached a lot of church people that never really talked about it. Well, My first trip to the Stark Club was a real world changer for me. It was about a week after my first experience with ecstasy. I was Really out of place. I felt out of place because everybody was dressed up wild and they were dancing and they had this chill space that was real cold down this pit and, and, uh, the, the restrooms were men and women, co-ed. And, you know, my little, uh, Republican conservative mind was totally blown, but it was the first time in my life that I thought this stuff is for real. It's not just in the movies and there are some people in this world having a great time. And I'm not one of them. I need to become one of them. You know, I never consciously sat down and thought, I'm going to be a drug dealer. I'm going to sell drugs. Uh, I wound up being a distributor sort of by accident because I was so evangelical about it. I was telling all my friends. And at first, you know, I'd, I'd get some from my friend and sell it to my friends for the same price I was paying for. In fact, my friend in Mississippi, I sent him some and his first response was, send me 50 more. had some other friends that wanted some, so I said, well, I need 100 this time. And that's when she said, you know, I need to connect you with somebody that uh, can give you a discount for quantities. I said, oh, that's a good deal. And you know, I was a businessman, so uh, I got uh, 100 and I got a, a nice discount. But I decided to keep selling them at the price they were going for. I think it was $20 a, a, a hit at the time. So a little money started coming in. And then my friends wanted more and more. And pretty soon I was ordering several hundreds, and, you know, multiple hundreds. And the discounts got deeper, and so... Well, the first time I met Thomas Crown, I was taken over to his apartment, uh, I guess more or less to have him check me out, and uh, we had a nice conversation. I picked up uh, a few vials of a hundred, a few bottles of a hundred, and went back a couple times, but I was coming back and forth pretty rapidly, and uh, I remember when I first realized the scope of what was going on was the day he trusted me enough uh, and we went down to the apparel mart and carried a big sample case like a carpet salesman's sample case only well, it was loaded with mdma and we'd walk in and go through all these places in the apparel mart and go into their back uh, fitting rooms and all and uh, get a bottle of pills and get some cash and walked out with a suitcase full of money and went home and dumped it on his bed. And so that's when I realized that, uh, you know, I might be able to save my computer company. I can get enough cash here to take up the slack of the cash flow I needed. And uh, there were always rumors uh, he was making a trip to California or he was going south of the border. Or he was leaving town where it wouldn't be any for a little while. and But I never really knew uh, the source of his supply or uh, how much he was uh, moving other than I know it was a serious amount of ecstasy because I saw it. Even though we knew it was legal we had an inkling that this wouldn't always be the case so right from the very beginning in our distribution network treated it as if it was illegal and personally I had a uh, safe deposit box where I'd keep the cash and the inventory so I never kept anything at home and that's what most of my distributors did as well, because we just had a feeling things wouldn't last as long as they, they did, actually. We actually had a handout, and we had a map of local payphones. And so I might call this number I was given and say, I'm going to be at 17 at 2 o'clock. And what that meant was at 2 o'clock, somebody would call that payphone on that corner, and I would be there, and I would place my order. And the orders were all in code as well. And so if I wanted to order uh, 9,000 units, I would mention or discuss movies, actresses, or studios. And so I would say, hey, have you seen such and such a movie? That meant I I needed to have 9,000. And the conversation would go on about nothing. And then he would say, by the way, uh, I'm not going to be in town next week. I'm going to be in Waxahachie. And Waxahachie meant the Anatole Hotel. And he would say a time, and we added two hours to every time. He said, "I'm going to Waxahachie. I'm going to meet with my mother at two o'clock next uh, Friday," and so that meant go to the Anatole Hotel at four o'clock on Friday, and there you would be able to pick up your nine thousand units. We had codes for every every thousand units for like five thousand, mention a city in the United States, three thousand, mention uh, domestic animals, ten thousand, mention a newspaper. Now, if you wanted twenty-two thousand. For 20,000, you mentioned transportation, like airlines, and 2,000, you mentioned automobiles. So you would combine public transportation and private transportation, meant you needed 22,000 hits. So it was kind of hokey, but it worked. Uh, I don't know anybody that got arrested. The the Anatole, the Melrose, Wyndham, Marriott, Stemmons. DFW Hilton, uh, the Adolphus Hotel, you know, we went to classy places, and uh, you would always ask for a party who was registered as John Thomas Jr., and uh, we would go up to John Thomas Jr.'s room, and uh, hopefully if we had enough cash, we would be able to pick up the material we wanted, but it was all cash. I didn't really consciously... Quit being a Republican, it just sort of faded away. I didn't consciously quit being religious, it just sort of faded away. And it most likely had to do with uh, a lot of the ecstasy I was taking, a lot of the conversations I was having with people, where we were looking behind what was going on. Uh, we were no longer just taking the word of the ministers and the, the priests, we were starting to look at what they were saying and, and a lot of it wasn't making sense when we were seeing things on a more spiritual level, where we were actually trying to behave uh, honorably toward one another. We were actually treating each other better than we had when we were uh, highly religious. I can remember one young couple. They were uh, not quite 30 years old. They had just lost a baby. The baby was born and died like two weeks later. And they were in really terrible shape. And I knew them. They were... Uh, friends through a friend at work and so I went over and talked to them and took them on their first ecstasy trip and I saw such and I'm not a therapist I was just sitting there to give them confidence that nothing would go wrong and I'd answer the door if somebody came I didn't do I didn't enter into their discussions at all I just kind of stayed back and I didn't take it myself then but I saw the two of them go through such a healing experience over the loss of their little baby That I, I, from then on, I I became even more fervent about seeing that everybody could have access to this because it it seemed to really, on its own with the two of them, solve a lot of problems. So one day I decided to really see what this stuff would do. Uh, The kids were at school, my wife was at work, I was home alone, I took 1,500 milligrams, which is a stupid amount to take. And it was really physically challenging, mentally. I remember having a bad headache. After that, ecstasy didn't work for me again. It was, it just, I burned out all the synapses. You know, during all the time that I was really actively selling and and moving a lot of product, I never once felt like I was a criminal or an outlaw. I felt more like Robin Hood. I felt like I was doing something really good for people. You know, there's a lot of laws I just don't agree with, and so uh, I don't follow laws in Iran. I don't follow a lot of laws in the United States. You know, I know a lot of people speed. A lot of people cheat on their taxes. This was just something like that that didn't feel like a criminal enterprise to me at all because it just was such a good thing we were doing. And then when they made ecstasy illegal, uh, I just kind of went over the top, I guess. I, I quit dealing it. I quit doing anything like that. But I felt like an outsider from then on. I felt like I'd been ostracized from the country that I grew up in because they didn't accept me for who I then was. Well, the first illegal drug I took was still MDMA because they made it illegal. And I got thinking, well, I'm already doing illegal drugs. And a friend of mine said, you've got to try pot. And so we drove to some park and she got a joint out and we smoked it. And and, uh, nothing. I didn't feel a thing. So she gave me a couple more joints that I took home. And it was two or three days later, I thought, well, I'll try it. The kids are at school, the wife's at work. And so I went out in the backyard and I smoked one and nothing happened. I, I kept saying, I'm not inhaling right. You know, I thought you don't have to learn how, but I had to learn how, even though I used to be a smoker. And I finally got it and I got really stoned. And I couldn't wait to get in the house and call her and say, hey, it works. I learned how to do it, you know. And and uh, ever since then, it's uh, been a very key feature of my life. In 1986, I decided I had to get out of Dallas. There were a lot of factors. The main factor was in the the back of my mind, I was afraid that I was maybe going to be uh, tagged by some of the people who were being called in by the DEA. And I knew I was a very minor cog in the wheel, and that's the way they work. They take the low-level people, the low-hanging fruit, take us first. And I didn't know that much, except about my own organization. I didn't know much going up other than Thomas Crown, and uh, I'm sure they already knew about him. But I was a little worried that that things would get dicey and I'd at least get hauled in for questioning. I didn't want to have anything to do with that. Uh, My wife was getting a little nervous about it. She didn't know how much I was doing or what I was really doing, but she knew it was kind of edgy. So uh, along with the business failing at the time, uh, I just decided it was time to get out of Dallas, and I moved to Florida. Well, once we got to Florida, uh, finances were really tight. I didn't have a regular job, had a house that was too big. And the pressure built up to eventually uh, my wife and I got divorced. And, you know, in Dallas, I'd I'd been doing pretty good for myself. I I had made over a million dollars by my 40th birthday, and I was feeling good about myself. I spent my 45th birthday uh, sleeping in my car under a freeway overpass, and I had been kicked out of the place I was living with my girlfriend at the time, and uh, things had gotten pretty bad. I, I couldn't find a job. I finally wound up working as a legal secretary for a woman who, uh, she was eight years old when I passed the bar in Texas, and uh, her hot button was to uh, have me go out and get coffee for her and her clients. So I, I had to really learn how to control my ego. Even when I'd hit rock bottom and everything had gone wrong for me, never once did it occur to me that ecstasy or drugs had anything to do with it. It was all about me. I never—I I still don't think uh, it had anything to do with it. In fact, if I hadn't known about ecstasy or MDMA and pot and all these other things, I'd be a basket case today. They're, they're, the, one, they're the things that really pulled me back up. And I think I would have had that crash whether or not I'd ever found ecstasy. But I was able to pull myself out of that hole because I, I did have some of these substances to help me. You know, it's funny when, when ecstasy got illegal, uh, they called it Adam a lot of times, MDMA or Adam. And then they said, but don't worry about it being illegal. We've got another one that's legal. It's called Eve. And I, I took a lot of Eve before, uh, probably for a year or two before I found out it was 2CB and of course now I know how to take 2CB but we were again we were taking 2CB like we'd been taking ecstasy and and the dosage is all different everything is all different and so uh, I had a real bad experience with E that I brought on myself it was when I was uh, driving a friend's uh, van with his hot air balloon to Florida and (laughs) I had a bunch of EVE with me and I don't know why I was stupid and I gobbled some of it and by the time I got to the last 10 miles to my mother's house I was seeing quadruple and I had no business being on the road it was the last time I ever took anything and drove because i would really stretched it and so I I totally abused it I didn't know what was going on which is really why I've come to where I am today in in doing my podcast and things is to to help teach the kids how to use these things that uh, we need some better drug education well after uh I'd been out here a few years and gotten to know Sasha Shulgin, who just, who invented Eve. I remember uh, sitting around one time and people asking him uh, about it, because it was one of, it's one of his favorites, he and his wife Anne. And he said the reason he invented Eve is because he couldn't have an orgasm on, on X, MDMA. And Eve, uh, which is 2CB, Uh, definitely does have uh, a lot more sexual activity associated with it. But the way that Ann Shulgin suggested, uh, she puts all the provisos out, it's illegal, don't do it, but if you are going to do it, uh, take 120 milligrams of MDMA, and an hour and 15 minutes later, take 10 milligrams of 2CB, and you will have a four-hour plateau on MDMA. And uh, that's really the best way to use it, I think. Uh, this is long after I left Dallas and uh, got access to some MDMA years later, and I got together with some veteran friends in Florida, and none of us had really serious post-traumatic stress disorder or anything like that. But we we were all still uneasy about being Vietnam vets. We felt we'd been taken advantage of, and uh, three of us got together one night and took MDMA and. I have to admit that it it made me feel much better about the things that took place when I was uh, off the coast of Vietnam. And the two of them who had been in-country with the Marines, I saw both of them all of a sudden hugging each other and hugging me. And these were people who were pretty cold and, and had the, the defenses up. So if it's ever properly investigated, such as Michael and Annie Mittenhofer are doing in South Carolina, they're having amazing results with uh, PTSD patients, especially Vietnam, Afghan, and Iraqi vets. About two years after I moved to Florida, I, a friend of mine gave me some window pane it was the first acid i'd ever had in my hands and and i held it for about four or five months before i got up the courage and one day uh kids were at school and and my then wife uh was going to sit for me and i didn't know what was going to happen i i seriously thought i might never come back you know i thought i'd go insane and i i took the lsd it was really good good acid too and uh, I had just a marvelous experience. And from then on, there was no turning back. Uh, you know, I've, I've used, uh, I've never used heroin. I've never used crack. But most everything else and a lot of things you haven't heard of I've used. Uh, I've gone through a lot of things In Sasha's book. Uh, before 9-11, I was involved in a study group where we were working our way through his appendix and trying them all out. So I've experimented with an awful lot of things. And I feel now that All of this experimentation with consciousness expanding drugs has expanded my consciousness to where at least I've convinced myself I'm much more aware of what's going on and I have a great deal more empathy for people who haven't had the advantages I've had in my life. I went through a period in Tampa where I was trying to be an atheist because I wanted to so reject everything. And yet a friend of mine lived on the edge of town on a farm where the cows kept leaving cow patties where mushrooms would grow up. And he'd keep giving me these magic mushrooms. So during the week, I'd be an atheist. And on weekends, I'd eat a bag of mushrooms and... Whoa, whoa! You know, they say you can't be an atheist in a foxhole. can't be an atheist with five grams of dried mushrooms in your body either. I used to get a magazine called Mondo 2000. And in it, I read an article about a guy named Terrence McKenna. And he was talking about a drug called DMT. I'd not heard of DMT. I'd not heard of Terrence McKenna. I mean, I was out at the end of the line. I didn't know but one other person my age who was still using psychedelics. Well, four or five years passed, and I was sitting home one night. Uh, At the time, we were starting to work from home, so I was downloading a huge file over a 300-baud dial-up modem, and I didn't have much to do, and the junk mail was there. I started looking through it, and there was a a flyer from this New Age watering hole up in Rhinebeck, New York, called uh, Omega Institute. And lo and behold, this guy McKenna was giving a workshop there. So I had a lot of vacation. I was making a lot of money. I was single, no girlfriend. I went up to his workshop. And like the, one of the very first things he told me when I was talking, he says, you ought to go to Palenque. Uh, and I said, what's Palenque? He said, well, it's the Entheobotany Conference. Go on down there and check it out. I'll be there. So I signed up for it. Went down to Palenque in January of 99. And I met the woman there who is now my wife. Uh, Six months after Palenque, I took a leave of absence from my work and left Florida, moved to California, Uh, never made it back. I just kind of accidentally retired in the summer of 99. And from there, from Palenque, I met so many people who are now all my closest friends. One afternoon, they were having a uh, lecture down by the pool, and I did some acid that afternoon. So I was sitting up by the conference center up at the top. And looking down in the pool and watching them there, but uh, a hummingbird came and got right in my face. It was feeding off of the banana trees there. And and all of a sudden, Sasha came up and said, Boy, that bird really likes you. What are you on? (laughs) And he and I sat there, and we talked about being in the Navy, because Sasha was in the Navy. We had the longest, most delightful conversation. Shortly after uh, that, the conference uh, session ended. Everybody comes up, and they all gather around Sasha, and then for the next two hours, he was talking chemistry with the chemists, and I didn't understand a word he said. But he could shift like that. He, would talk, he could talk to anybody about anything and make you feel like you'd known him all your life. Well, you know, I came across MDMA again after I got out here when I got involved in the rave community. And uh, there was a lot of raves, a lot of dances. Uh, there were very few people using it as a... Uh, a therapeutic drug or in pro- small groups and so i've kind of made it a point in uh, my podcasts and in, in going around to some of these uh, festivals to spend time talking with the kids and encouraging them to get together in groups of two three or four and using it because it's great to dance on there's, i'm not saying that there's anything bad about that but if that's all you do uh, and you're not getting anything else out of it these kids come and say hey i want to take this feeling with me back to work when i go back to my cubicle and I said, well, you know, get together with some people in a small group and do it and talk about it. Don't, don't just dance on it and you'll be able to take some of this, this uh, special feeling back with you. I've seen this yes, in the short time I've been involved. I've seen the rave culture really go through a lot of transformations from the great big moon parties where where there's 20,000 people in the desert uh to smaller raves and buildings the inside raves i've seen the highest form the most spiritual forms of it evolve into what uh, is now known as the festival circuit and it's worldwide on the west coast there's some amazing ones like symbiosis the beloved festival uh, the oracle gatherings things like that to where they're all weekend dance parties but they're outside and they have workshops and massage and families there and it's it's evolved uh, to where at midnight they'll have a ritual and a spiritual ritual it's not just getting together and dancing it's getting together and trying to create a better world and i personally believe that the worldwide dance community is the single greatest hope for our species Directed by Tom Huckabee. Camera and editing by George Wada. Stark Project producers Dennis Bishop, Michael Kane, Wade Hampton, Miles Hargrove, and Milena McKinnon. Stark Project executive producers Arthur E. Benjamin, Ruth Mulch, and Don Stokes. Original music Todd McLeod. Additional camera Joe Kerr. Production manager Gabriel Horn. In closing, I'd like to thank Michael Kane and his entire production crew for the opportunity to tell this story. And in particular, I'd like to thank Tom Huckabee who directed the project and asked the questions that you didn't get to hear. And a big thanks to George Wada who did a lot of the post-production work and uh, wound up making my rambling seem to uh, make some kind of sense. And if you happen to be in the market for a boutique film of your own, I'll post the contact information for Tom and George in the program notes for this podcast. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.